Hello and welcome to today's episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. Today I speak to Professor Sibyl Erdogan from the University of Oxford's Education Department. Over the past couple of years, she has been involved in an EU research project known as the Fedora Project. The project itself involves input from education experts from several countries across Europe who are looking at answering some big questions in science education, namely what knowledge, skills, attitudes and values will today's students need to thrive and shape their world? And also, how can we make them citizens of science in a world of fast-paced change? We have an in-depth discussion delving into the purpose of science education itself and how schools can keep pace with this society of acceleration. So much to talk about linked to this fascinating topic. So let's get started and hear Professor Erdogan's view from the lab. Hi, Sibel. Welcome to the View from the Lab podcast today. Hi, Andy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. It's really great you can come on today to the podcast because um, I'd like to find out about the project, the research project you've been working on, um, uh, which was called the Fedora Project. Now, I guess before we start, um, let's go back to the Fedora Project in a minute. Let's just start with a little bit of background uh, about yourself. We had a little chat before the podcast began about a bit about your educational history, so to speak. So we are talking about science education. What was your experience like as a younger person and your science education? Any, any thoughts about um, your experiences? Right. Yes. Yeah. So um, I grew up in Cyprus, in the in northern Cyprus. Okay. I uh, went to a, a school that had the English curriculum. And what I'm going to say next is probably going to re- reveal my age. But at the time, there were GCs, GCE O-levels and A-levels. Okay. So um, I had, I followed that curriculum and... At the time, there was no practical component to the GCE O-levels when I did them okay. this was in the 80s. And so uh, it was primarily just um, examination-based science content knowledge. Um, so I had very limited experience in terms of practical science in my um, secondary schooling, which I always sort of wondered about and uh, wished that we had more exposure to practical science. But that's one thing that really strikes me uh, about my secondary education. Um, But that said, I think I had some brilliant teachers and uh, some of the content knowledge that they uh, taught still resonate with me. I can remember some of the things that I memorized about Ohm's Law or Um, I can repeat verbatim what uh, the teachers would have taught. Uh, So we had some really good teachers who instilled a a fairly rigorous um, approach to content knowledge. So that was good. That aspect, I think, of my experience was um, excellent. So so it's positive. And and in terms of um, thinking about the practical work, I guess, do you think that was a reflection of the way the tests were designed and your teachers want you to do well on the tests and there wasn't a requirement for practical work? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's where um, the issue with assessment, the importance of assessment comes in. So you, you might end up having lots of new ideas in the curriculum, but unless you change uh, assessments, uh, formats and content, it's really difficult for teachers to uh, have the incentive to do something that's not going to be on the test, understandably so. So, I mean, they just tried to do the best that they could relative to what 
it was asked of them. So I, I believe that had a big component. So do you think, I know lots of um, teachers I speak to now talk about um, uh, a greater amount of accountability, I suppose, for teachers. Do you feel that your teachers um, felt that as well? Or was it what is, was it less so than perhaps today um, accountability? How do you feel that your teachers were accountable in a sense? Um, there weren't, I mean, the teachers in England at the moment have very, like, there's lots of high pressures on teachers in terms of accountability. Um, I mean, of course, my view on this would be from myself as a, as a pupil, uh, from the eyes of the pupil. So I wouldn't have known, even though I grew up in a, a family of teachers, I know some of the pressures that the teachers would feel at that point in time. Um, I didn't. I don't think at the time there was as much pressure on teachers in the way that there there is now, in terms of accountability. I mean, they still felt really strongly accountable, obviously, to for all their pupils to do well and perform well on these tests because they would get, you know, the the word would get out and the success rate of the school and how many, you know, A's and B's and C's you get and at the time. So that was important. So there was accountability in that sense, but I'm, I don't think there was accountability in terms of performance and, uh, you know, uh, sort of what that meant subsequently for, for, for the teacher in, in the school. But, um, but I'm sure things have changed over there as well. I see. And um, so you had uh, you know, a positive experience of science. Uh, what was your journey after you, you left school? Did you go in a science direction? I know you're working on science now, or did you go in a different direction? Um, what was your next step? I did, yeah. So I was, I was very good at chemistry. I, okay. Chemistry was my first love in terms of an academic subject. So I loved chemistry, studying chemistry in secondary school. And then I went on to do a degree in biochemistry and chemistry. And that was at Northwestern University in the USA. I got a scholarship from the Fulbright uh, program to study there. Uh, that was a, a fortunate um, turn on events for me in terms of obviously the financial aspects of having a scholarship and so yeah. on. Uh, so I've continued up to master's level in science. I've done a, a master's in food science and, and chemistry as well. And then at that point, I realized that um, having having uh, between my uh, undergraduate degree and my master's degree, I've taught in a high, in a high school in Cyprus. So that was a def defining moment for me. I really enjoyed teaching. Um, but then I still wanted to go back and do more science. At that point, I think I, was, I may not have been quite clear what I wanted to do, education or chemistry or science. And so I went back and did a master's. And at that point, I realized I, I'm actually quite interested in uh, thinking about educational issues and thinking about science from an educational perspective. And so at that point, after my master's, I made a transition to doing a, a PhD in um, science education. And that kind of naturally, naturally led you to, I suppose that the work you're kind of a similar work to, to you're involved, involved in now. And um, they specifically asked you to come and talk to us about their Fedora project. So um, there's lots of letters in there. Could you uh, um, illuminate what um, each of those letters stands for? So Fedora, so the, the Fedora project is a, a project that's funded by the European Union Horizon 2020 program. Okay. And it's being led from University of Bologna in Italy. 
Right. And uh, there are, apart from us, from the UK, uh, in the Department of Education at Oxford, uh, there are other partners from Finland, Italy, Netherlands, and Lithuania. So it's quite an international uh, project. But in terms of the name of the project, um, I believe the original naming uh, was uh, conceived by the uh, the leader of the project in Bologna, uh, my colleague Olivia Levrini, who uh, was inspired by a, a novel that she's read um, by uh, an Italian author, Calvino, uh, and the, the novel is Invisible Cities. And she, and Fedora is one of the chapters in the book, the name right. Fedora. But it also resonates with uh, the acronym of the project that she wanted to communicate about the spirit of the project, about future-oriented science education. <clears throat> and I don't know Italian, so I couldn't tell <laughs> exactly, but the, the letters of Fedora stand for futurizing of science education through in acceleration society or something like that. Okay. I, we'll talk about the details of the project itself, but... Um, so it's it's an Italian inspired novel inspired uh, uh, name that speaks to a, an imaginary city in the future and an invisible city of the future, right? Um, and it, at the same time, has a play on words with the acronym of the the content of the project um, in Italian. But in Italian, okay, I, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Myself, so that's as much as I can uh, relay about that. That's fine. How did you? So, how did you hear about that? How did that get proposed to you? Or was that something you you saw and you thought it would be good for us to get involved in that? How did that come about? Right. So, uh, so my colleague Olivia uh, in Bologna uh, and I have known each other for a number of years. I, I mean, see. We've uh, met many years ago at different conferences, and uh, we've known each other, and we've been reading about each other's work and bumping into each other in conferences. But this particular project um, was conceived at the ASC conference in Birmingham, uh, where she came to attend and I was there as well. And uh, we just met up and and started talking about a new project, uh, potentially participating in a new project. So it was the, the roots of the project, the the the, the roots actually are from in the UK. We started talking about this um, in Birmingham and uh, at a, at an, in the context of the ESC conference. And then uh, other partners came on board and um, the project was born. It's quite interesting that you uh, mentioned the ASE actually. At the time of recording, I've, I've literally just come back from uh, the 2023 ASE, which was at the beginning of the year. So it's good to, good to know that those kind of collaborations and those in-person in, in conversations uh, bear, bear fruit in terms of um, you know, future projects. So, um, in terms, so, yeah, so those, those conversations and, um, uh, of course, that there's funding available for it. And it's, is, is it a three-year project? Is that correct? Three-year project, and uh, it'll be finished in, uh, at the end of August this year. Okay, so it's almost you're kind of moving towards the end of it. And it is based in, is it the 11 to 18 age group? Or what age group is it mainly focusing on? Uh, 11 to 18. Uh, so in terms of the people cohort. But Fedora has different components. So there's the component about... Uh, students, so ultimately, we we care about how people's uh, get 
the skills that they're required of them for their future. That's the spirit of the project. So what are some of the skills that are really critical for pupils to, to know, to have for their futures, to manage their futures, which is uncertain and invisible, like the invisible city in the novel. In the novel, I see. All a purpose of the project is to imagine what are some of the future-oriented skills that need to be uh, taught. Um, but that question isn't just relevant for the pupils. Obviously, we need to also talk to the teachers, hmm. to talk to other stakeholders, such as people working in learning in other learning environments like museums, um, policymakers, curriculum designers, assessment colleagues. So it's a very systemic approach. And so even though the focus is secondary education, 11 to 18, um, we have as part of the project um, engagement from other uh, stakeholders because the project views all of this as a, 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 an ecology of learning. So the peoples will need to learn ultimately these skills, but then we need to, we, I, myself as an academic or a researcher need to learn uh, everybody, all the stakeholders involved in this project of developing skills for the future, we, we everybody has a, something to learn. I mean, that's that's the bottom line with the project. So that's a very long answer to your question. But <laughs> that's, that's fine. Yeah. That uh, you know, the... But I just wanted to clarify that the project isn't just about the students. Mm. It's also it's a collective. So the students are the ultimate, obviously, goal of the project. Yeah, yeah. We need to be working with different stakeholders in order to be able to get to uh, doing something meaningful with students. Yes, and uh, you can't kind of you can't take you know just the students in isolation as the obviously the whole network around you know Absolutely. education education as a whole. And do, is it um, do you kind of imagine as in the outcomes of the project being um, suggestions of how that model might look like and kind of what what time period are we talking? Are you saying that this is um, at the end of the project, would you be thinking this is how we'd like things to look in, say, 2030? Is there a particular time period you're kind of set, sensing it's it's going to apply to? Any thoughts on that? That's a very interesting question. I mean, so the future is obviously um, any time from now. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean... So the different parts of the project are dealing with this in, in different ways, and there are different constraints in the different countries involved in the project in terms of curriculum reform or assessment reform. So realistically speaking, it's very difficult to put a, a, an actual timeline okay. because we have to be sensitive to the local national contexts of the countries involved. Um, so we're kind of fairly realistic and commonsensical about this. I mean, we, we do have fairly broad, big ideas about recommendations that will come out of uh, the project as a result. But and, and we might ultimately say we haven't yet done this, but because the project is still ongoing, we might say in the next five years or in the next 10 years, you know, we might have recommendations with specific mm. timelines. But I think ultimately, obviously, the uh, actual implementation of the recommendations will be very specific to the context that they will be taken on board and, you know, uh, adopted. Okay. Yeah, I guess be, of course, country, you know, country and state dependent or, or how, how it might be. Um, and I was thinking, when I was looking at the uh, Fedora and I was reading around it, there was, there was a term that came up 
which was, and it's quite long term, it said inter multi transdisciplinary fields and their link to science education. Could you explain a little bit about that to me? Is that kind of linking to your stakeholder idea or is it something else? What, what do you mean by that? Yes. So, I mean, there are academic courses about interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity. Academics love this sort of stuff. I mean, around and talk about what's the difference and what do you mean by interdisciplinarity? What do you mean by transdisciplinary? What's the difference? And then if you ask someone, they probably... 10 people in the same room, they probably will come up with very different definitions of each of those things. I see. So I don't want to get into the details of that because I'm not sure if that's that's useful for our purpose here today. But I do want to say the what, why it's important. I mean, however you, you approach the definition, uh, what's the, the, the key message there is that science is often, has often been divorced from its context. So science is done by scientists, yeah. and then there is society that science applies to or has impact on. So already there is that separation of science from society, and anything to do with society as well. For example, economics and politics, and you know, historically you would get scientists to talk about science, and they would not touch economics or politics, and you know, so that's all society, but this is science, but. One good example of recently, obviously, example, an ongoing example is COVID-19 pandemic, where we've seen how science cannot be divorced, actually, from society. And science and politics and economics and psychology and mental health and all sorts of um, aspects of being a human is related to science and society so uh, so it's it's really difficult to, dis- to disassociate science from other disciplines so when we think about multidisciplinarity or interdisciplinarity the idea is let's rethink about how we think about science can we think about science examples in terms of the economic context in which these examples are operating the political context in which these are operating whatever the issue is. Uh, so it's that's the spirit of it, that it's no longer enough for students to only know the concepts. You're going to learn about photosynthesis and you're going to learn about viruses. Um, you're going to learn about diffusion. Going back to the COVID example, yes, the students will learn about what a virus is, what concentration is, what diffusion is, particles, you know, these are concepts that are all related to a viral uh, transmission, but you have to be able to connect them together across the sciences, first of all, and then the broader social aspects of social distancing in the transmission of virus, psychology around social interactions. Hmm. It's a complex issue. And so the, the, the point here is really about how do we ensure that science is meaningfully embedded in society and societal issues so that students can make sense of why they're studying science? Because we know from research that often students don't see the point of studying the concepts that they're studying. Why do I need to know about diffusion? Mm. You know, what am I going to do with this information? Mm. 
if it's just very decontextualized, it's not meaningful or relevant from the student's point of view. Now, it's, it might be from our point of view, but not from their point of view. So that's the spirit of this interdisciplinarity and uh, multidisciplinarity, you know, drawing on different perspectives from different domains, different areas, disciplines. So not kind of taking away the, the pure science in the, in the sense you think about, you know, you know, do do students have to learn science in a very pure way without the application or obviously the context makes the application seem more real. But I, I, I kind of like your idea about kind of the big ideas and diffusion is a great big idea because it does span across biology, physics, and chemistry. It's something that that, that, can, that, that can literally diffuses through the, through the specification um, and can be used. And I quite like those big ideas that, um, uh, that are important. And a lot of them do come from physics, I suppose, energy and matter, and, and they can be translated. But yeah, maybe we need to be a bit more um, obvious about uh, their link to the real world. And, you know, COVID-19 is, 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 is a great example, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's about... What's the best scientific medical decision to make? What's the best economic decision to make? And there's no perfect answer. And perhaps maybe bring in a bit of that into the way our science problems, even our assessments perhaps, are perhaps um, changing in in, in some way. And it kind of leads me on to that idea, because Federer talks about this idea of citizen science, which I assume means, I suppose, an educationally, sorry, a scientifically literate Adult, is that what you kind of mean by a citizen scientist or a citizen science? Because that comes up a lot. Citizen science has been around. This is yet another um, term that has been defined by different people in different, At different ways. times. Okay. <laughs> times. But um, roughly speaking, broadly speaking, it is about engagement of the public with science. Okay. And um, so this, for example, could take the form of the public collects data let's say, from their garden and contribute to the data set about and the environment or, you know, birds or bees or, you know, whatever data that the, the, there might be a project, an environmental uh, science project that the public can feed into through data collection themselves. So they um, act as a conduit to that research that is being done and it's real research. So the, the regular citizens participate in, providing the data. So that's typically that's the sort of thing that is thought about in terms of citizen science. Now, of course, there are different ways of engaging the public in science, and it it all boils down to what we mean by science as well. You know, what counts as science? And in fact, does data collection count as science? Is, Is that really the most important skill that you want to get across, for example? Because one of the things that scientists do, they collect data, yes, but they also interpret data, right? They interpret the data and they interpret the data. Why? Because they want to understand what's going on. They construct models, uh, theories. And so there, there are steps that go beyond just data collection, for example. So which is also the, those processes are also about science. And so... It really depends on how how um, whatever citizen science project is doing, what it what they're doing, what aspect of science they are advocating or uh, um, uh, including in their programs. So in Fedora, as you know, we we talk a lot about certain skills um, in terms of the kind of skills that are necessary for a future-oriented 
science education but maybe i'll pause there in case you wanted to ask for a question I was, I was thinking about so you're talking about um what i think from a personal point of view in terms of what i think someone's missing from science education at the moment this is my personal view is that i think that um obviously there is a there is a lot in science curriculum generally and there's only so much time you can, you've got with children to teach them about what you want to teach them in all different subjects because all different people want their 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 slice of the the, the educational cake uh, so to speak but it made me think about the way that in science education at the moment, we're very good at in really uh, teaching a scientific method. But actually what we maybe are a little bit weaker on overall is like the statistics element. And I think often you see in the media things about statistics. And I was watching a program last night, Comrade was called, it was some kind of food science program talking about, you know, the effect of this or that. And it just made me think that often we do read things in the paper or online, um, but we don't criticise. And I, I don't criticise you know, where did that data come from? And, and knowing a bit more about how big was that data set when you're talking about data and, and citizen science and people being involved in that and understanding the difference, the, the different quantity effects. And maybe that is something that citizen science is maybe, or what we don't do brilliantly well at the moment because it kind of sits in mathematics. It doesn't tend to sit in science until later on, perhaps. Any thoughts about statistics and science and how that might fit into citizen I mean- science? Actually, what you've said relates back to the point that I made about like, what do you do with the data that you've collected? So unless you learn what happens next, yes, collected the temperature, you collected, you know, whatever morphological feature of uh, birds or bees you were in your garden or whatever. I mean, I'm not denying that's also part of science, but I, I, it's it's a big leap from that sort of data to reaching conclusions. Mm. One of the things that um, I'm interested in in my research more generally is is what's often called argumentation, which is about justifying claims with evidence. Okay. So how do you how do you know you have all these data and then you, you're going to say something as a conclusion? How do you do that? And how do we how can we support the students to do that? Um, and so and that's not just a. A general question about in a, in a particular context. I mean, this is a skill that you're going to face in your everyday life when you go into a shop and you're trying to buy a mobile phone and you're going to be offered three, four different claims about why this particular phone is the best one for you. Mm. So unless you know how to question that claim and get the evidence and to assess the evidence and justification of the evidence, um, so the skill of that argumentation skill, like evaluating the argument that is being presented to you, yeah, the claim and the evidence and the reasons, you might end up sort of buying something that A, you don't need, B, it's too expensive, C, the, the, the claim isn't really justified. And, you know, and th- there are a lot of things going out there also on the internet and in everyday life. So this, this kind of skill of, teasing through evidence and data to evaluate conclusions is is really not just about science i mean it can it is also about science it's a skill that is required of everyday people everyday citizens and in terms of statistics yes i think that that's that points to the importance of coordinating this this skill of meaningful engagement in evidence and data in science lessons yeah 
with math lessons. I mean, the, the, the more coordination between science and math, actually, in supporting students to understand statistical conclusions. You know, how do you how do you draw? I mean, what do you say about the data? The numbers are not going to speak for themselves. No, and they're often, often kind of not not always published either. Not always told. You kind of see, might see a headline about it, but you don't. Um, yeah, and I think like that. I mean, at the moment, I think there's a. Uh, I'm recording this in January, and I think there's a RSPB like a bird count or something in the garden, some kind of data collection. I think at the moment they they do everywhere, and that kind of makes you think about um, engaging in insight and collecting data and seeing that big data. But I think in, in, in schools, from my experience as, as a previous school teacher, is that in science, you often have, you know, five data points against five data points, draw a nice little graph, and and, and that's it. It's not very many points of data. So maybe that's something that um, perhaps in the future, students need a concept of this bigger data. And we've got the tools like, uh, you know, various spreadsheet applications that it could be a way that we could look at bigger data and, and be a bit more critical about it and link that into um, not just very controlled science experiments, which are important as well, but it, maybe that's an aspect that, that possibly might be um, ex- explored in the future, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a different way of scientific reasoning, isn't it? it yeah. in, controlled experiments, manipulating variables and seeing outcomes, testing hypotheses is one way of doing science. Um, but what you're referring to is another way of doing science where you're, you could you're collecting data, you're making observations, and you're trying to reach conclusions. You haven't necessarily controlled variables. It's, a, it's, that's just, it's just not that sort of an investigation. But, but nevertheless, you need to collate the data and you need to make sense of the data, big data. And so that's, that's an important skill. And I, and I agree that it's often not um, uh, highlighted in uh, secondary education. Or minimum, you know, very peripherally highlighted. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, some definitely some, some room for uh, for for alteration there, perhaps. I was going to ask you about um, so the three main concepts within the Fedora project. And the first one I've got down here is about co-teaching and open schooling. Um, what does that mean to you? What's the um, what's that aspect of of the, of the project trying to to find out? So again, you know, so the Fedora project wants to have a, a renewed vision for the future of science education. So that's the whole point to the project. And in order to do that, we need to change the way in which we investigate how to reform education. Um, so what I said earlier about engaging different stakeholders, therefore, is really important. Yeah. So we don't want to, the project does not want to just tap into one thing. Let's change the curriculum and see what happens on the learners. And that's it. Or let's just do CPD and see what happens with training teachers. And that's it. So it's in terms of setting goals for the future, well, what are some of the key skills for students to know and to have for the future, for them to be able to live and manage their futures? What do they need to be able to do and to learn. We cannot have that question only in terms of what happens in schools. We have to also look at what kids do outside of schools, what they learn learn elsewhere. And if we're going to change anything at all about the, again, it's, a, it's like an ecology of learning or learners and stakeholders. So there needs to be involvement across the board. So open schooling in the sense of 
let's open the doors of the schools to museums, to families. Let's open the doors of schools for teachers to interact with, let's say, curriculum developers or assessment people and museum uh, learning educators, right? So the, the entire approach is about bringing together the community of education related stakeholders in science education yeah. in order to have any imagination about what this could mean. And it's not an easy thing because there might be different and alternate and sometimes conflicting agendas in with different communities, you know, in, in, but, but I think it's a useful step to have that coordinated approach to, to think about some of the traditional barriers in schooling to, to learning. So what, one thing that I wanted to highlight, actually, which we talk a lot of in, in Fedora, is that there are a lot of changes in science and technology. Yeah. And, and so in Fedora, we talk about a society of acceleration. So imagine the society is just running wild. I mean, it's going really fast with all the d- developments in science and technology. And yet, it, we go into a school... And again, no, no, no. Um, I mean, this is not about teachers or school administrators. It's the, it's the entire schooling endeavor is not catching up with this accelerated society that is being influenced by all these tools and new ways of behaving. And I mean, outside of schools, students have interact on social media. They learn lots of new things uh, that I, I wouldn't know because I don't come from that generation of, you know, I mean, I, I see that disconnect in terms of the skill set already. They, the, the kids have different skill sets that they're acquiring from outside of the school that don't match what's going on in schools mm. because they're different types of knowledge. The schools have very, there's the curriculum and the assessment regimen that are very that is very rigid yeah and they live in a world the kids live in a world that's fairly fluid and they're learning every day through the internet so there is this disconnect between the pace of progress in society and what the kids are being exposed to and what the schools are doing do you think they're i suppose they're they're, they are kind of hampered a little bit by the way that um I suppose the, I suppose again it goes back to assessment and and what what is required for the assessments at 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 the moment and how that is as, as you said, is a big big disconnect um, in terms of even as facts that, um, you know they're writing exams when when you when you think in the in the outside world they probably don't pick up a pen when they're outside of school, um, you know they're they're tapping on they're using their fingers or they're manipulating things um, as as they do with screens you know 3D as well you know and, and VR etc. Um, and it's difficult for schools at the moment. The gap seems quite big at the moment. And I guess I guess that gap needs needs to close. I guess. So one of the the, the concept that you refer to in Fedora, the con- one of the concepts is about bridging that gap and trying to align at least some experiences. I mean we're realistic about what can be done. We then, through these engagements with different stakeholders, at least try to bring some processes to be in alignment with what um, the current demands are on everyday citizens. So 
that's partly why uh, we, we think about sort of co-teaching and open schooling in a way to extend the skill set uh, and, and through community engagement. I mean, the community itself, the community, when I say community, it's all the different stakeholders in education. That is the resource. So the mere communication itself is part of that learning experience to, to see what can be done. Definitely. I think that, um, I mean, when you talk about, so concept two is all about imagination and the capacity to talk about contemporary challenges. Is that, um, kind of so using the COVID-19 example, is it, is it having children with the, with the right amount of scientific knowledge to be able to make a intelligent decision about um, something, something like that in, in, in their lives? Is that the, the thrust behind that argument? That's that's exactly uh, the thrust behind that argument. So, and obviously, if the, I mean, we going back to the concepts that we talked about earlier about you know you need to understand what a virus is, you need to understand what diffusion is, what particles are, and then you need to bring them all together. So you need to have conceptual understanding in science, but you also need to be able to have some critical thinking skills and reasoning skills. Uh, for example, if someone says, don't wear a mask because it doesn't make any difference. And a second person says, wear a mask. It will keep the particles, you know, uh, away from you. Yeah. Which one do you believe in? And I think we've done, we, we, so, and why is the question? Because there are two very, and, and this isn't some esoteric uh, academic discussion. It's a, it, whether you're going to wear a mask tomorrow or not. I mean, that's an example, and it's probably a complicated example because scientists have been studying this themselves. But it's those kinds of skills that have a bearing on, you know, your reasoning. I mean, you need to be able to reason and sift through the claims that are being made and to be critical and, and to be able to use the evidence and to solve the problem. And, and, and it has a direct consequence to your own actions. If you use your reasoning to, you know, obviously act on the, on your reasoning. Yes, and I suppose the uh, the government to ex- uh, to explain that. I guess things like the I say the mask. Now I haven't considered this, but I heard somebody talk about um, the, the relative size of a virus compared to the relative holes in a lot of the masks, and whether that was, you know, so what is the what is the what is the need for a mask if that is the case? And I don't I don't know what the counter arguments that 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 was. But I think this is, but that's the point. So we don't have to sort of like a teach a science teacher can sort of sift through some of that evidence, and 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 there may not be a difference. So the third argument could be that you know you, it doesn't matter if you wear a mask or not because. But the idea is that you engage in that process. Yeah, and you're thinking about it. You're you're not only just learning about these concepts that don't have any bearing in your life whatsoever, so you don't understand why they're relevant for you. But as it, it, when a teacher brings this to life in the classroom with this societal context, and you engage with how um, how what you need to think about about these uh, different scenarios, then that's that's still you know that's that would be more than what uh, might typically be done with learning these concepts. And I mean, I'm not. I mean, I think a lot of teachers do this sort of thing anyway. I mean, it does happen. It's not, it doesn't happen at all. Um, but it's those kinds of skills, critical thinking uh, skills uh, that the students would need to be to have in order to be able to engage in meaningful discussions that are 
consequential for them as well. Definitely. I was, I was thinking also about, um, and the pandemic brought this up as well, is, is this uh, children under, uh, children's understanding of the way, I suppose, things like algorithms and AI works in terms of feeding you similar information that you have consumed before and have an understanding of, of, of that as well. And, and the search, I suppose, for truth, um, whatever that may mean in terms of, um, you know, the, the right, you know, the, you know, the right relevant evidence that you can make a judgment on, because I think obviously uh, with um, these, uh, these systems and, and, and these apps and that give us the information that uh, we prefer over and over again, rather than maybe a more disruptive, um, you know, different point of view, which is, which, which is, is, which you, perhaps got in the past a little bit more you could argue about different media agencies and how biased or not they were but i suspect there were um a, a better judgment of having a bit of balance compared to a you know a computer program that's just going to going to tell you oh this is this person likes this kind of thing i'm just going to give them more and more of uh, that that information so i guess there's um more social and uh, um aspect to that as well and understanding the way technology is impacting the way we get our evidence as well would you say Absolutely. And there's one aspect, uh, I mean, there are some other aspects of the Fedora project in terms of skills. So I talked about critical thinking. Yeah. There are other aspects um, uh, such as uh, um, future scaffolding skills. Yeah. Concept three. Well, I was going about to move on to that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to? <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. So, uh, so one of the concepts in the project is about future scaffolding skills. So how do we scaffold skills that are about the future. And what are these? Uh, we talk about scenario thinking. We, we can imagine a scenario and work through that scenario. So it's all kind of imagination based on a scenario. Systems thinking um, and managing uncertainty. You know, how do we manage uncertainty? Now, these things may seem, and I think you might, uh, I, I, I can almost hear you say <laughs> that they are fairly sophisticated concepts right mm. scenario thinking thinking systems thinking managing uncertainty but let me give you a, 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 an example from an everyday person's life point of view as an adult let's say the students have graduated and you know in their future lives they're going to get a mortgage mortgage so the whole process of buying a house Imagining what your future will be looking like in terms of your living situation, your finances, you know, what renovations you might need to do, who might you might hire to do what for renovation. I mean, these are all, this is a simplistic way. This is every adult will need to imagine this in their adult life. I mean, not every, but, you know, a lot of us will have to engage in this. And as anybody knows who gets a mortgage and gets a house, you'll need to deal with a lot of uncertainty and you need to manage yourself in that process. So managing uncertainty about whichever aspects, the finances, the purchase, the exchange of contracts and so on. Now, this may not seem at all relevant to science because after all, I'm talking about an everyday situation. And But the skills of um, using... Um, scenario thinking and managing uncertainty is is actually very relevant for uh, within science as well i mean i just purposefully gave an example that's from everyday life yeah to show that these are not these are not skills that are so or that are only needed by scientists 
because they're going to be able to manage a lab and they need to deal with the uncertainty of whether their funding will be enough to finish the project that they're doing. Or they need to imagine the scenario of what the experimental setup will be. And then once they set it up, it doesn't work and they need to reset it up and they need to think it through. It's another scenario. Uh, So the, the... the principles of these skills apply can apply from in, in different situations. So I don't see them as, and in the, in the project we see them as being really relevant. And of course, with secondary students, you need to think we need we need to think about sort of other examples that are relevant for the students to make these things work for, from their point of view. Um, but they're certainly not. Uh, skills that are would be alien in the lives of everyday people or scientists. Do you think that um, having kind of reflect on what you you're talking about in terms of conversations and and thinking that you might have after you've left kind of um, science you have at school? Do you think there might be kind of room for two pathways so one where there's almost like a citizen science pathway so it is um more um more relevant i suppose for want of a better word to young people and there's also a separate more academic science because we have these two two journeys that some people may um prefer um to go further with science and 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 the needs of those people are different than maybe or slightly different to maybe a citizen science any thoughts about a divergent science education at secondary level at all? I think as as our conversation is progressing, I've I've mentioned that I think certain uh, skills are necessary for both being a scientist and being a general citizen, a regular citizen. Yeah. To be able to critically evaluate data and evidence and understand what you, you get exposed to in your everyday life to solve problems in your everyday life, like to get a mortgage or not, this the the, the, the or to get a, this mobile phone or that that mortgage deal, those are skills that you need in your everyday life. So we cannot afford not to give people those skills. To the ability to critically engage with data and evidence and claims, for example. Uh, so and and scientists do this all the time. So they the scientists need these skills because they're collecting data, they're evaluating data. So it's the context that's different in a way, but the context may make a difference, obviously. Uh, and so I can see the argument that if you're going to be a scientist, then you need more examples and and more rigorous types of activities that are embedded in science concepts. Whereas with a citizen science approach, you might end up having, you know, the mortgage example or, and I don't want to sort of downplay the importance of that, but I think the, the issue of, um, the, the, the issue with science versus non-science roots is that if you don't understand the concepts, it's very difficult to have a discussion. I mean, the sort of thing that I'm talking about, if you don't understand what a virus is and what a, you know, Hmm. Um, diffusion is or what a particle is, you're not going to be able to engage in critical evaluation of the claims, right? Whereas it might be easier to do that in the context of um, whether or not I should eat X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's 
more accessible from your everyday life. Some examples might be more accessible. So, um, So I can see a, a, an argument for splitting the route to at a point where scientists to be engage in more scientific concepts in their education because they need that sort of subject knowledge as well. So the quick answer to your question would be yes. But at the same time, I want to emphasize that I see an overlap between some of the skills that are required for all. Yeah, no, no, it's fundamental yeah. units. And I guess, uh, and a, a lot of it comes back to maths, I guess you talked about in the mortgage example and things about, um, again, statistics to a certain extent, probabilities, how long will I live in this location? If I buy this house, um, in terms of linking it to science, you know, what decisions might I make that, that, that would have an impact on climate change, for example? And that interplay, you were talking earlier about you know, the economics of that decision, the uh, the the global effect of that decision, the local effect of that decision, all those all those things coming into play about, um, you know, what you plant in your garden. If you have, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, all these all these kind of things, um, that, that that might link into that. But having the fundamental science knowledge to be able to make a judgment on those, I guess. Absolutely. And but here's the other thing: if you go into the science route, it doesn't mean that you're just going to be secluded in this shell of science concepts. Again, we've we've had scientists on our TV screens every single day during the lockdowns, uh, informing us about the developments about COVID and vaccines and so on. So as a scientist also, you cannot uh, detach yourself from economics and politics and society. I mean, we might have had this way of thinking about science and scientists as as being sort of... uh, you know, not not embedded within everyday sort of public engagement, but increasingly with some of the demands on the planet, including, you know, climate change and so on, the scientists themselves need the skills that are um, relevant to the broader public. Communication skills. I mean, the scientists need those kinds of skills as well. So So the... the way we think about science is maybe changing as well. I mean, or, or how the enterprise of science is operating. And the, the I was going to say the age-old problem in the UK from that perspective in terms of when you look at um, members of parliament, for example, and a percentage of members of parliament that have like a STEM degree. I I, um, I don't know the, the precise number, but I always know whenever I hear it, it's, it's, it's low. It's maybe 10% or something, if that. Um, so uh, the importance of, of that for... Those people who seem to tend to go into these lead, you know, leadership roles within um, governments, etc., and having that that that, that STEM understanding, um, you know, would, would obviously help in terms of in terms of in terms of their their decision making and uh, the way that they decide to um, you know organise things within you know whatever the country the country they may, may be in. But um, thinking about um, when when the project's all over, when the Fedora project's all over, um, and um, you've made your big conclusions. Do you think that, I mean, number one, where, 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 do, where could people go, to, where do people need to go to, to find those conclusions? And I suppose, what are your hopes for when, it, when it's finished, what impact that might have, um, as we say, five, 10, 30 years down the line? Any, any thoughts about the next bit? Because I know you're in, you're in the third part, and you? Is it round three of the, the research? That's right, yes. So the, we do have a project website, which is uh, fedora-project.org. 
EU, so F-E-D-O-R-A dash project dot EU. And that's for the entire project, but all the outputs of the project are um, available already on that project on that project website. So that would be a first point of call for uh, accessing some of our resources. And as part of the project, we have different types of outputs, including publications, video-based materials, other leaflets, recommendations, policy briefs. So again, with the different stakeholders uh, in mind, we've, we've been producing different outputs. So uh, for students, for teachers, for policymakers and uh, academics, and etc. So um, I, 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 I would encourage colleagues to, to visit the website to, to, to obtain some of those. You know, that's not everything may be relevant to everybody because it's an overarching project, as I said. So as a teacher, if you go into the website, some things may not be necessarily directly relevant to what you'll be teaching tomorrow, but there will be some resources that um, would be based on teaching uh, experiences of our uh, project teachers. So, uh, so there will be something for everybody on the website. Um, so in terms of what we would like to achieve, so in, um, one of the things that um, we identified in the project is um, these misalignments, we talked a little bit about this, you know, misalignment between pace of progress in society and how kids are learning what in schools and uh, the, this mismatch between what skills are required and what the skills that the kids are already having outside of the school and what they're getting in the school. So narrowing that gap is one ambition of the project. Another is, um, is we need we need new ways of thinking and new, the project talks about new languages and tools. I mean, can we talk about new ways of thinking and new things if we don't have new ways of talking about these things? And how do we do that? And this is where your question again about multi-interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity comes in. When you start drawing from different perspectives, so yes, science, but also economics and politics and ethics and other social aspects, that has the likelihood to give us new tools and perspectives so we can start to think about a new language for education. That's the intention anyway. And I think one of the outcomes of the project will be to have some recommendations about how can we imagine schools of the future? What sorts of, um, how can we talk about this? You know, what do we draw from science? What do we draw from societal aspects? One thing I haven't mentioned so far is uh, some of our project partners are doing a lot with arts, bringing arts and science together, arts-based projects and science and uh, encouraging creativity and uh, intersection of imagination through different media in um, arts media. And so, and that has a lot of implications for cross-curricular uh, and cross-subject collaboration in schools, you know, how, how engaging teachers of science, I mean, science teachers and arts teachers and music teachers in ways that might uh, give us new ways of thinking about how to improve uh, 
um, students' future-oriented skills. These are the sorts of things that we're aiming for that will sort of probably not, obviously not uh, close the gap entirely between progress in society and research and innovation and the, what's happening in schools. But we could begin to bring those things together maybe through some different ways of imagining what uh, new ways of uh, teaching and learning might be and how we might engage other uh, stakeholders. Yeah, I was thinking, so you're talking about, um, when you talk about that interdisciplinary idea, I was thinking about things like, you know, climate change and the, and the way that um, different projects are, are kind of run in, in the real world and how you do have, um, as you say, people um, perhaps uh, with strengths in, in the artistic side and thinking about presentations, thinking about marketing, I suppose, and thinking about evidence. And uh, I think there's, at the moment, there's a bit of a gap there, as you, as you, as you say, in terms of um, using some of those student strengths as well and working together on, on perhaps uh, more creative um, projects. And I see that with my own children, as in they, they, I think they feel a little bit um, constrained a little bit by the way things are at the moment. And having some aspect, you know, I think there's a, there, 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 there's also a place for obviously, of course, for knowledge, but also, uh, you know, linked to that, um, you know, creativity. And I think um, at the moment that that, that that is something that, that sounds like your project is kind of boring out, speaking to young people, talking, um, obviously, trialing your resources. Now you try climate change resources as well and getting feedback from that along the way. So it sounds as if, the, um, you know, by the end of the, the project, there'll be some really interesting conclusions and, I, and I'm assuming you'll be back at the ASC in what 2024? Do you think? And you'll be, be telling us all about it. Would that be the Would that be the case? Absolutely. Yeah, we'll aim to uh, go back and uh, uh, present our outcomes. And yeah, um, absolutely. Any Any final thoughts? Because I know you've got to, you've got to head off. You've got a meeting in a moment. So anything anything else you'd like to add before? Obviously, um, to follow the um, the, the website mentioned earlier uh, for all the all the developments. Anything? Any any parting words? Um, before we wrap up today, I just want to conclude with some of the other one aspect that I haven't mentioned, which is about uh, making policies. Okay. Because obviously, unless something is policy, you know, curriculum, not much change. Not much change. And going back to a question about how many years and how many, you know, so realistically speaking, unless there's a change in policy, it's hard to imagine what would change. Um, so. But this has been, we've thought about this with this project and we do have a range of stakeholders also involved um, and the stakeholders, policy stakeholders, we're calling them. And, and they could be curriculum developers, assessment uh, experts, people who work in organizations like museums or uh, textbook companies. And, you know, again, the different stakeholders who are in a position to make an impact on whichever front of education in this ecology of learning. And so we've done some work with policy makers, we're calling them, uh, this group of stakeholders, uh, to get their views on what this involves. And we have, um, so we have actually published uh, some of the results from that engagement in a journal called uh, Frontiers in Education in June 2022. Um, so, and, and one thing again, that the policymakers themselves highlighted was the importance of interdisciplinarity and problem solving. So that was pretty much, I mean, this was the spirit of the project, but it's nice to see that, you know, there, there is alignment in terms of 
for example, academic or research-based ideas on innovation and uh, the policymakers' uh, views. But but in any case, it again, it's a learning experience for for in the entire community because the community of different stakeholders is is the resource for this project. That's how it's all how it's thought about. So, um, yeah, so I think that, you know, obviously we have a long way to go. This is just one project to do. And, and so we would aim to sort of hopefully scale up and disseminate some of the things that we're learning. And I think what the project highlights also as a final point is that we do a lot of what we know in science rather than how we know and why we know. We bombard students with a lot of information about what we know and we don't engage them in how we know things, why we know things. And so those elements are necessary for imagining your future because the what is may change. And in science, the concepts change from time to time. I mean, we have new scientific knowledge in light of new evidence. So, you know, dedicating more time to um, engaging students in reasoning about why we believe in certain knowledge and how we came to know it. This is all part of the spirit of this project that we hope will help them manage their uh, futures and, you know, reasoning sensibly about uh, what they get to know uh, in their lives. Yeah, I'm thinking, as you say, that the, the how is, the how they know and, and uh, not just uh, that it's this um, bit of knowledge that's, you know, set in stone, so to speak, um, and the methods and the ideas and the questions is what science science is all about, isn't it? So I think if it, this project goes on to encourage that, and I'm sure it will do, um, that'll be all to the good. So thanks very much for your time this afternoon. Um, I know you've got to head off now, um, but it was really nice to talk to you and nice to hear about the project. And I shall hope to see you in ASE perhaps in 2024 and hearing the final conclusions. Thank you very much, Sibel. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks for the opportunity. Really enjoyed talking with you. Well, there you have it. Plenty of educational goodness to digest this week. I look forward to seeing the outcome of the Fedora project when it comes to their conclusions. And I'm sure we'll have some positive influence on the future citizens of science. If you know anyone who should be on the podcast, please do get in touch. My email is andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next one.